This call is now being recorded. Welcome to the Welcome to the V2B podcast. This is uh, Marcus Parrish. With me today is uh, Alexi, and this is the uh, episode of the V2B Survivor Series. Today we're talking with Mark Babbitt uh, from the Elan Survivors Incorporated. Incorporated, right? Yes. All right, Mark. So thanks for coming on. And um, the way we usually do this is just to ask uh, the, our guests to kind of define what the troubled teen industry is, or TTI, or I like the way you put it, the torture teen industry. So, teen um, torture, yes. So, so what, what, in your own words, like what, what is this thing that, uh, that we're talking about, TTI? Well, from what I've investigated over the years, along with my, my partner, Matt Hoffman, who's also vice president of the company, um, is that it, this has just been an ongoing thing in our society. It started out with Charles Dieterich back in the 60s and the 70s with Senanon, which is basically a, it's a degree of what they call Korean brainwashing. And if people were to ever look at old Korean wars camps and stuff like that, through documentary reports, they would find that that same style of peer pressure was always used. Um, they, they tra- that, that, that philosophy traveled into groups like... Um, Daytop Village in New York as well as Connecticut. Connecticut was a little bit rougher than New York, but Connecticut was kind of hardcore. And then you had the Lawn School, of course, that fell in behind that, you know, which was developed by a guy named Dr. Davidson and a guy named David Goldberg originally. And they started out in a house in Naples. And Joe Ritchie at that point was kind of chummy with a guy named Dr. Pet that was in um, a place called Dartek that he went to after Daytop Village. And he was friends with Davidson, so the long and the short of it is they all got together. And Joe Ritchie and his wife Sharon, at the time Cheryl Button, they lived in this house in Naples. They worked for, for, for Davidson and Goldberg. Well, in a short period of time, David Goldberg got caught doing things wrong and was expelled. Joe Ritchie's wife at the time happened to have an inheritance. And you got to think, now, it's the 70s. You know, you could buy a brand-new Corvette for $6,000 back then. She had a $10,000 thing from her grandparents, so Joe Ritchie bought in. At that point, Gerald Davidson's job was to sit in Boston and recruit, and Joe Ritchie would run these farms. And he would buy places out in the middle of nowhere. They tried to open up in Connecticut to begin with. The rules and regulations were too stringent, same in Massachusetts. And they found themselves in the glorious state of Maine, where pretty much anything goes, and it does to this day. And he just rolled in there and opened up the line. He started out in Sebago, and uh, one of the kids there, Torkelson, he burnt that place down. Um, overall, the it was just a brutal place. It was a it was a peer pressure on steroids. It was just something that was never really done before. Um, the only place more brutal in history would have been in Florida, at Dover School, where the White House boys are at. And there's several documentaries depicting the brutality and the murders that occurred there, which is very very sad. Um, but Alan was just it's, it was just like its own island. He controlled the state. I was there from Illinois back in 1975. I was pulled out by the state of Illinois. Um, it was a big hoop-de-do at the time and everything else. This was just right before the Michael Steckel case came in. And um, nobody ever seemed to pay attention. Illinois brought it in, but yet Maine found nothing. Uh, Michael Steckel's case came up not that far afterwards, the cousin of the county. He really didn't you know, like to refer to it that, but that's who he is. Um, they came in. His, his every investigation teams came back in. I, I mapped out over 40 years of Milan's operation. They were under investigation at least every year by some state. And it's well documented. 
Um, but yet nobody ever in Maine did anything about it. They just let it roll. You know, I have testimonies from police stating that they were threatened. I have, I have, I have testimonies from parole officers and probation officers that had people in a while that were, that were not allowed to see the people. Stating that they, if they ruffled the feathers, they could turn up on the side of a mountain. You know, the place was just, it was off the chain. There was boxing rings. People got beat. I've seen people get beat up in rings and hauled out the door and off they went. I escaped a couple times. I got put in Parsonsfield, which is out in uh, East Parsonsfield, Maine. And that was an old sanatorium on top of Mount Randall. The most spookiest place you've ever seen in your life is the same way it is to this day. It's what's pretty ironic about the Iran facilities that are locked. Is they're the same as they were the day you were there. Nothing in Parsonsfield's changed. There's purple curtains in the window still from 1975. It's very, it's very spooky. And I've been inside of it. And, um, that was a place that was a lockdown facility because they had contracts with other states where kids got actually got sentenced there. And that was really the crazy part about it. You were mixed in with everybody from little North Shore kids from New York or, or Chicago that never seen anything in their life that hardcore dope fiends and killers. I mean, it was, it was such a crazy mixture. And there was over 200 people there. You know, but they sent me to Parsons Field, and they put me in a dungeon in the basement, which is on our documentary site. There's pictures of the glorious room I spent three months in. They were just like that. They were mind breakers. They were brutal, just brutal, brutal stuff on children and teens that just, it wasn't, it wasn't necessary. And they, and they, they had kids there, you know, Tommy Campiano was a kid that, that he was a gay guy from uh, Rhode Island. And they swore they were going to make him not gay no more. And Tommy Campiano was a full-blown drag queen when he got there. He wore the makeup and everything. He's the whole real deal on that. And they swore they were going to change him. That's the type of place the lawn was. You know, they were going, and they were homophobic because you wouldn't believe in racist like you've never seen in your life. There was 200-some people, I think maybe seven were black, and that's just because it was. You know, the place was just, they taught you hatred. They taught you ridicule. They taught, what I, what I took out of Milan is every way in the world not to treat somebody. Because in their eyes and, and their ways was to break you to nothing and bring you back up. And some people, sadly to say, they drank the Kool-Aid and it worked. And to this day, they're still saying it was the best thing in their life. But I think for a lot of people, it was the worst thing in their life because they saw life way too fast. You know, you're 13, 14 years old, and you're with people 25, 30 years old, or hardcore drug addicts, or killers, or, or people who have done some pretty weird stuff, and like molesters and weirdos. You don't need to see that to recover. You don't need to see that to change your mind. That's not what you're needing. You're needing some loving and some attention. You know, a lot of the, the groups they use, the primal screen therapies, and the statics, and the sensitivity groups, etc., were very valid sources to work with. But what a lot lacked is they lacked their recovery net. You know, it's it's fine to rip somebody down to the ground. A lot of times people need to be torn to their knees to understand what's going on. But then you have to build them back up. Alon didn't do that. They just left you on your knees to figure it out. And that's where the long-term damage, I believe, really occurred is because people, many people to this day, and I've met hundreds and hundreds of survivors from not just a lot of crates incorporated in other places, Circle S Ranch, that um, they just still to this day don't get it. They were so mentally beat down in a young age, which is your most vulnerable ages, and you're forming ages, but to this day, they still think they're nobody and they're worthless. They have no value in life. And, and that's, I guess, what started the Alliance of Virus Incorporated, you know, 10, 15 years ago, and Matt Hoffman, is we figured that, you know, somebody's got to give a voice to these people that can't speak. And I, there's people to this day that campaign very well under anonymous names. There's a guy named Joe Nobody, which I won't mention his real name. But that guy is phenomenal. He's been out forever. He's worked with Reddit. He's one of the people that controls the place. 
but he still has an inner fear of just the threat that Joe Ritchie and his environment put into him. And I've proven through my own campaigns with the Phil Williams campaign, a kid who was murdered there back in 82, that I confront these people head on. I've made the newspapers. My name's all over the place. I'm very well known. But some people, they really hurt. And I guess the, the thing I'm saying is that I came from a brutal environment. My father was ruthless. So I grew up in a very ruthless life to where violence really never affected me. Where some of these kids like him, they didn't grow up in that kind of environment. And it did affect him. His day, and he's a grown man, he's in his 30s. And he's still, and he's not a sheepish guy, but he's still afraid of Joe Ritchie and his, and his clan. You know, and that's sad. And Mel Assembler did the same thing to people over in Straits Incorporated. He traumatized these people, a group of people that are very strong and everything else, but a lot of them are just so screwed up still from these places. You know, well, Mark, well, yes. um, one of the things that kind of is, is a big factor in this industry is sort of like the, the illusion of power, but like how powerful was Joe Ritchie? Joe yeah, Ritchie was, yeah, I know what you're saying, Joe Ritchie was a big circus act. You know, many moons ago, when I was younger, I used to collect money on the East Coast. I was I did bounty hunting, so to speak. And I knew a lot of individuals on the East Coast. That's one of the blessings I got before I really went after these people with web campaigns and posters in the yard and all that stuff. I got some grace from people of that area. And Joe Ritchie was a guy, he had too big of a mouth. He was too flamboyant to any, you know, these people talk about the mafia, which I don't believe there's a mafia. That's just a story that people make up about groups of people that form businesses. You know, but yeah, he would never fit that mold because he caused way too much negative attention. Not positive, but negative. He's always fighting with the governor. He's fighting with some, some, some attorney general or somebody to work. Those groups of individuals, they don't want that. They don't want that. He was a pawn in their circle. You know, I, 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 I'm sure business was transacted there, but was ever Joe and what they call the mafia? He wanted to be, but he wasn't. But some people right. didn't believe that. I I think I proved that over the years when I when I went after his organization. He was already dead, sadly to say. I wish he was alive to fought the battle so it's bad often. But no, you know, if he was a protected person or he was a part of any type of groups, his, it would have carried over to his wife and the racetrack, which was constantly failing, to where somebody would have said something. Now, did I get a few threats along my path over the years? Sure you do, but those could be those could just be survivors that drank the Kool Aid that think all of a sudden they became tough. You know, right. but was the answer to your question was he a, a mobster connected? To the best of my knowledge, absolutely not. Absolutely okay. not. You got to look at all the stuff. If you read about me a little bit, look at some of the things I've done up there. There's no way a guy like me could still be walking around. I'd have been dead in the mountain somewhere if that was true. Right. Hey, uh, Mark. So. That that is uh, amazing. I mean, that's a, a great kind of picture of what um, Elon was. Are you aware of, or do you have like knowledge of people who run current programs? I mean, are you that connected in the community still that you're aware of um, institutions and facilities that are still in operation? Because we're, well, we're really trying to go after, go after places that. You know, well, that's, we try to reach out to people like yourselves, people that are out there that are in the current circles. What we do, our group primarily, is we, we concentrate on the past groups and what created this monster. 
and, and put it right. into the internet and get it on. But, but the younger people, the younger groups are actually looking at specific things. People need a place to call. You know, they're not going to call Straits and Corn Korea. They're not going to call a lot of survivors. They're going to call somebody who's really unbiased, and they're just looking to help people out. You're the people that would connect into groups like ours that would investigate these places and look into it. Right. Because you have to have a survivor look at it. Because if, you, if you've never been in a place like this, you really don't know the science. Because it's all a right. big ass. Uh, right, exactly. And the, and the problem is that this model and these types of... Uh, you know, uh, therapeutic communities or so-called therapeutic communities where where it's like peer-to-peer, you know, psychological breaking, breaking the other kids down and then, so, and then building them back up are still, you know, very much in operation, as you well know. So, uh, But they, they've got, they run a very important target. to look at because it's actually still occurring right now. So, uh, you it's know, it's really valuable. The sad part is is that even once you get this to people's attention, which I think we, you know, the Lyon Survivors Group and all the survivors that participated, i got to say thousands of us participated, thank God for all that, Todd Nelson for, for producing the documentary, that, you know, we got their attention. They know why we came to Maine. The Phil Williams case lasted every 9, 10, 15, you know, 11, you know, so months up there. And in the meantime, we showed our documentary, and we did this, and we campaigned, and we put signs up and passed out posters, all this stuff. So the state of Maine clearly knew we were there. The media knew we were there. But you know what? Nobody seems to care. They're more worried about going after some guy like Kavanaugh, who's accused of basically nonsense. We're talking back in college days. You were guys are guys and girls are girls. You know, but we would rather concentrate on that or investigations that really are irrelevant to what's going on in our world or people outside of our country that that we have so many problems right here in the United States. What we need is the federal government, and we've, we've tried, we, we've done legislation. There is legislation. Amaya Chavez has done legislation on this stuff, but you got to get somebody to back it up. It's great to have a bill. It's great to have this, but you've got to get people to back it. You know, when people are Mark, told, you know, you know it's, that's Mark, the tough part. Mark, when you said that the police were threatened, who were they threatened by? Attorney General. Uh, Attorney uh, General. Local officers. The Attorney General is what killed the Phil Williams case. The state of Maine is very unique. There's only Portland, Augusta, Bangor. Portland, Augusta, Bangor. There's one other place. Those are the only towns that are allowed to do a murder investigation. So if you get killed in the state of Maine, everything's done through the state police. Now, the state police, which makes no sense to me, because the police officers, may not talk to hundreds of them, are very competent, competent officers. These guys are, are good. They know what they're doing. They're local guys. Very capable of doing a murder investigation. They'll probably solve it because they are local. But <clears throat> then it goes into the attorney general's office, which in any other state, the attorney general would never see you on a local murder case. Well, for what? It has nothing to do with their office. That's your local municipality is going to prosecute that. But everything channels through them. So at the point where, like with my case, um, Janet Mills didn't want no part of it, didn't care about it. And you literally had hundreds of people call up and talk to him about the Phil Wilkins case. And, and people, they explained a lot to him. And I was told by, by the chief of police or state police up there that they're only interested in the Phil Williams case. Because I, I told them ahead of time, you're going to hear a lot of stuff come out of here. And that I just couldn't understand. What do you mean? 
we're, we're discussing a case, but in the meantime of this case, I tell you about six, seven other things that are, that are possibly prosecutable, but you don't care about that just because you're concentrating on this. And I couldn't believe it. I thought it was just the Elan and maybe just the patronage, and if you have to go back down the ladder and go grab people for letting the stuff slide by, because the death certificate was all screwed up. There was, there was never even a cause of death, and the kid was a state ward. This thing had to pass seven deaths to get to the coroner's office, and nobody at any of those deaths had ever said anything. That's pretty ironic. But throughout this time, I became on the board of directors of the main cold case and missing person squad, which what we do is we cook with legislation for people that have missing persons and cold cases. And I saw just the, the barrier there. You know, these, these people, they basically wait till the families die unless it's the case. They put no efforts out. They say they don't have the resources, but yet, Guys like me that do investigations and stuff, they want no part of us. Private investigators, they don't want no part of the FBI. They invite no help. They don't even communicate. I was at a at a house meeting at the state house there, talking with all the senators at a meeting, and they all agreed that no, these police departments don't communicate. You know, so I mean that gives you an idea of the state of Maine. Now take back right. 40 years to think about what it was like. It was Bob driving around in a squad car with a with an old revolver. And a shotgun in the back. They were they made seven dollars and forty five cents an hour back in the seventies. Okay, driving around the mountains of Maine, dealing with all these. God knows what you're going to find out there. Now, yeah. if I gave now if I gave a guy like that five thousand dollars or ten thousand dollars to be my best friend, I could change his whole damn life. You could buy a brand new Corvette for sixty five hundred bucks back then. Ten thousand dollars would buy you the best mobile home on the mountain. You know, so I mean, it's how Joe Ritchie did it. They were making $1,200 a month per head, and they had 225 people. Do the math. Right. And the overhead overhead was zip. Poland Springs was an old boys' camp called Raleigh Camp. It was a, it was a, it was a Jewish boys' camp because back in the days in the 50s and the 60s, it was very segregated up there. And it was Raleigh Camp. It was just an old bunch of bungalows and stuff like that. It was a beautiful place. If you go to it to this day, it's still the same place as any of us left. The furniture still in the dining room. So your overhead was zero, and it was all self-employed. It was all internally employed by the residents because the patients ran the asylum. So outside of the cook and a nurse, you need you didn't need anybody. Everybody else swept, clean, painted, does this, you know. It was self-sufficient. So it costed pretty much nothing to run, you know. And he, and he was only regulated under alcohol and tobacco. He wasn't he wasn't under uh, Department of Health and Human Services back then because in Maine. Every department was, they weren't one entity. Now they're all one entity. And he was taking mental health patients there that were coming from mental health facilities, like myself. He should have been licensed with Department of Health and Human Services. And that was a big dispute when they pulled us out because they were only licensed, or I shouldn't even say licensed, but they were being overseen by alcohol and tobacco. I think it was alcohol or substance abuse or something like that. But it had nothing to do with behavioral. And throughout the years, they got an Asperger and everything else. I mean, stuff that was just so far out of their wheelhouse. You know, because they forced so, people. So, Mark, I wanted to kind of get into uh, uh, a little bit about um, Sharon, uh, Sharon Cherry and, and what what she did after uh, Richie died. Um, what was that like? And Because and I, I know that you kind of went to war with her regarding Phil. Um, so can you kind of talk about that a little bit? Well, sadly to say with Sharon Terry, and, I, and it's never been my business to confront women. I don't do that. I never collected money from women. I've never threatened a woman, never punched one. I don't, I don't like right. that. 
but sadly to say, Joe Ritchie left her holding the ball. And, and being okay. the survivor of me at help, I treat her, I, I, and you shouldn't say this these days, I treat her like a man, I treat her like an equal. And, and it was sure. time for her to go down. Sharon Terry started out working at a hotel, like a seaside or wayside hotel in Naples. That's how Sharon Terry got involved in a lot back in the 73 or 74. And she dated half the guys there, and et cetera, on the go. It's a story. The husband, they say, used to like to watch the parties. After all that, Joe Ritchie was on the rocks with his with his ex-wife at that, now that ex-wife. Sharon Terry pops in the picture. Joe Ritchie was always good reading off the floor, so he got a hold of Sharon Terry. They were only married a year before he died. They weren't married all those years. That was his mistress and his, his woman in the office, and she played around while she was still married. Then finally she got divorced, and the story goes on. Uh, but, yeah, Sharon Terry was just, she's a viper. And what happened to Sharon Terry, she's one of these people that went out there who had nothing when she got there and walked away with everything but didn't understand the plague that Joe Ritchie left behind. The legacy that comes back and bites. In other words, it's almost like Frankenstein's monster coming back. I, saw, I told Sharon Terry back, I got to say it's 10 years ago, I said, what you need to do is you need to go back in some of our files and read the reasons why we were in a lot. Now, understand something, Sherry. Nothing about that has changed. All we've done is we've just matured. We've gotten better. And we've calmed that side of us, possibly. But we're the same crazy idiot that came to that place. None of, nothing about that's changed. And now we're in a position to bully you, opposed to you, how you bullied us. Sharon had right. a back down after Joe died because the place was ready to get shut down by somebody. They were so well, out of hand. He clearly was on the side of Elon. I mean, her quote is, the school has been a target of harsh and false attacks put over the internet and yep. unfortunately been unable to survive the damage. I mean, if she was really... If that was, with, if that was Joe Ritchie... If Joe Ritchie was still alive, he would have came after everybody with shotguns. Joe Ritchie would have no, never no. stood at all. Joe Ritchie, he, he, was, he sued somebody every every day of the week. I mean, this guy always had lawsuits. He was suing everybody. He sued the post office, sued this guy, sued the banks. He sued everybody. Joe Ritchie would have caught a hold of this. He would have sent shotguns after you. Sharon Terry didn't know what to do because all the stuff we're really talking about, stuff that she saw and was around but had no control over. So how do you fight it off if you can? And by you but saying... Isn't it, interesting that, isn't it interesting that people who, and, and this is part of the, these institutions, that people even who have gone through and seen this brutality somehow get coerced into siding with the abusers. I mean, she knew better. So to come well, out, you know, years later and say, called, oh, it's, it's, we're fine. What's called a Stockholm syndrome. The Jews suffered Stockholm syndrome. That's just it's 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 when you it's when you feel bad for your oppressors because you feel that they're just doing what they have to do to survive. So for you to hate them for doing what they're doing to you, it's not right. And that's truly is a definition. It's called Stockholm syndrome. That you get brainwashed right. into a point where you just follow the leader, no matter how you you know what you're doing is wrong, but you don't do it, you're the one. And that's how Elon was set up. If you didn't tell on somebody, you didn't divulge what you, you know, you and me are sitting on the back porch having a bowl session telling some jokes, they would call that glamorized. And we have, a, we have a contract. And if one of us didn't tell on the other one and somebody told on us, we're screwed. You know, it's just how it was. It was a twisted circle. So if you didn't feed into that, you feel sorry for these people because, you know, hey man, if I don't tell somebody finds out I saw that I didn't tell that I'm in trouble because of you, it's that type of effect. And that's the Stockholm syndrome. You feel sorry for your, your, your oppressors. <coughs> and that's how yeah. people drink the plate. 
that's why Jim Jones managed to kill all those people. People, honestly, they, they fall into your, your trance of your cult. And that's what Lon was, was basically a cult. You know, there's people, I'll tell you, this thing in the world that ever happened to him and be able to justify somehow that it's okay. It's okay. It was all right. It's okay. They can't even say that maybe for some it was okay, but it wasn't a one-size-fits-all, which I think that would be the better definition. Some people do yeah. need to literally have the shit kicked out of them to understand something. Some people need to be fucked to one hell. And, and Alon didn't think that way. It was a one-size-fits-all. You're going to be this way, and that's the way it's going to be, and you like it or not. And now, I think, that's why, I think that's why some of the survivors give these positive testimonials and say that, you know, we lost, saved my life, and, and uh, so on, because they they drank the Kool-Aid and don't recognize that they have survived in spite of the torture, not because of it. They've overcome a lot of this stuff, and then they attribute their their good life that they live now to, to Elon or other institutions, when in fact, it's just that they've overcome a lot of that stuff, but then they retroactively attribute it to, you know, the abuse, which is kind of bad. As well as you you have people that are chemically chemically imbalanced with with, with with disabilities such as narcissism, to where Alon was a great narcissist. A great, that was a beautiful, a great therapy for a narcissist. You stay in control. You know, so you get out, if you're a narcissist when you went in, you're, you're a narcissist on steroids now, and, you, and you're comfortable. You think that was right, because it is all about control. I mean, pushing you around and slapping people down. You, you, you know, some people, yes, in that therapy sense, it worked like a charm. But everybody's not a narcissist. It's good to have some narcissism, but not be a total narcissist. Right, you have to have some self-worth and believe that you're, you know, important enough to yeah. uh, you know, sometimes you're, be your center of attention. Sure. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I, I totally agree. We uh, That's more just self, uh, having other feelings of, of self-worth rather than going to the extreme of being a narcissist. We, we, Mark, have, the, we have some pro-Alanians that are with us in our groups, and that's fine. And we don't we, we don't judge each other. That's one thing about Alanians. No, 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 I think that's important, too, that, that we, we don't want to judge survivors regardless of their attitude. Um, that's not weird. We don't. It's unfair. Right. So uh, I'm with you on that. You know, power, you know, a lot of us don't believe the same politics, and that's all fine and dandy, but you know what? We're still brothers and sisters because of the stuff we went through, and that's fine. At least now we can, we can argue about politics or argue about differences of opinion because where we came from, there was only one opinion. <laughs> now we can at least free to form our opinions. I mean, I, I still struggle a lot with Stockholm Syndrome, you know, and I mean, it's... It, even even though I'm quite well aware of what went on, and I'm quite avidly against anyone who ever took a dollar in this industry, I still struggle with, you know, staff members who, you know, you know, were probably, you know, in their young 20s and trying to, you know, make a, a dime to pay for college. You no, know, I get it. Some of these people are just doing what they had to do. But I guess the way you define them is, is the ones, how many of them were just, I guess, walking the walk and how many, how many people were dancing the walk? You know, I mean, right. there's sick, right. sickles that really, truly are digging my job. And then there's guys that are just there because, you know what, pal, I really don't want to tell you to do this, but, you know, I got to pay my bills, man. Could you please? 
you know, and, and, and being in, in situations like you've been and myself, there was a big difference between the guy who was always nice to you and the guy who treated you like an asshole. The guy who treated you like an asshole really dug his job. He was into that. He wore the uniform, was always pressed, looked nice. The other guy was kind of just regular like you or at me and, you know, would ask yeah, you but- things. Yeah, be it a jail or be it an institution, the nicer there was always nice people who were just there because they had to make a living. There was always guys there just loved why they were there. Yeah, glad. But but Mark, I also I also think there's a whole good cop bad cop thing going on too. And no, I, I think agree. That that, you know, I think that regardless, you saw something, you must have seen something that 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 made your stomach churn. And if that's the case then, you know, you as an adult have to make people are, people are scared, man. People are scared. They're cowards. They're, they, have, they have a cowardly side to them. Um, tends to be the nicer the person, the weaker they are when it really comes time to stand up. I find a lot of that out with the with the missing persons and murder investigations I do in Maine. Great people in Maine, wonderful people, but a lot of them just don't have that, just don't have the balls to stand up and say something. You're dealing in towns yeah. where two, three hundred people. God knows in two, three hundred people towns. Somebody knows something, but they just don't have the guts. And if you get in there right and calm them down, you get amazed at this stuff, the history that comes out. It's not something you want to know about. It's just some people, they just don't have it in them. You know, a lot of survivors are that way because eventually as kids, their families beat them down, institutions beat them down. And, you know, and don't believe, you know, and these families too were also fed a line of shit because a lot of these families truly were at their last straw. They They had no... No, I don't know what to do. And then here comes the Messiah, and you're reading all this great literature and everything else. And what do you know about therapy? That's why you're seeking it. So you really don't know what to gauge off of. You know, they're going to tell you, really, we need to separate you for a period of time from your, your, your child or whoever, so they can get away from you. You get away, from, and we got this isolate so we can tell more. You get it. And after enough years of nonsense with somebody or craziness, you're glad you don't have to talk to them for a while. So they really, they, they mold the families enough. You know, straights was good. They, they duped a couple family members into going into straights by the time they got done. There's a couple stories on that one. But it's just, it, everybody's programmed. So when you call your yeah. parents up, this place is horrible, blah, 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 blah. All they're seeing is progress. Because they told him, he starts complaining. The more he complains, the more, he, the more he's seeing change. And he's, he's going to resist it, understand that. So you're already set up for, yeah, okay, well, Billy, when... When things get better, you know, I got, no, no, not just yet. You got to stay a little bit longer. You know, now you think everybody's against you while I'm monitoring your phone call like they did a lot. Shaking my head saying, yeah, I guess it's just us, pal. I told you, your parents didn't watch it. Now what do you believe? You're 14 years old, crying your eyes out. You're like, man, my whole life's abandoned me. I know I was that bad of a person. Some people yeah, never grow I, uh... Some people never grow out of that trauma. You know, why do kids run away because they don't like where they're at? Where are they running to? They don't know. They just don't want to be wherever they're at. They just want to get out of there. You right. Know, it, it, it's, right. You know. Sure, and it's important to recognize. It's important to recognize that in you know in many of these cases, the trauma that these kids have been suffering are, is coming directly from their parents. And oh yeah, you know, is where where else is the trauma coming from? You know, really, when you think about it. Um, well, you know, there's, it's a, there's the a family. There's... That you know, it's the family that's creating all this stuff that that gives them a great excuse to send their kid away. Yeah. So yeah. so they bought into the program before they even know, have realized it. So all I think you know, especially if they've got the money to pay out of pocket, um, they're just bored being parents, you know, they don't want to communicate with their kid anyway. 
and because there are other there are other solutions, obviously, instead of just shipping your kid off to some camp. Um, well, sure there are, but I think that's as an kind adult, of what we're going for sure. And I, um, and I, I think that's very true. And, and you know, as an adult, I think the, the the biggest thing a lot of us struggle with is our past. And you know, there's a guy out there by you called Jesse Lee Peterson, Reverend Jesse Lee Peterson, great guy. Um, he makes a very good statement about first thing to to getting anywhere in life and being successful is you have to forgive your parents. You have to forgive your parents. You have to forgive your past. You have to put that behind you. Your, your past lives in you, but you can't live in your past. And that's what so many survivors of my messages to those people is, is you, you have to stand up. And when you stand up, your voices are louder. You know, parents these days need to know to, to look at these places, pay attention. If you can't just show up randomly, that's a problem. Those are flags. If your kid's really crying out with craziness, think about it for a second. You know, I mean, it's your kids have lied to you at that point or whatever. To the we don't believe anything they're saying, but there are some things they'll say that they normally wouldn't say. You know, and, and when you start looking at places, you see repeated reports on a place. You start understanding that maybe this is a bad place. You know, don't always let the psychiatrist be your guide because these psychiatrists still get stipends. It's not legal, but you know what goes on. You know, so yeah. it, we'll send people certain places. You know, there's a place by us called, um, what the heck's it called? Um, Allendale. And Allendale is, is kind of a therapeutic slash recovery whatever place, but it is residential. And they own like 15 of them around the country. You know, and there's always complaints on these places. So if a parent actually looked at Allendale, they would find out if they got past the disguise of being corporately owned, they would look at that corporation and find out, wow, this is a mess. A River Edge Hospital in, in, in Forest Park, Illinois, where a lot of us from went to that to line from. That, that, that's a corporate place that owns hospitals all over the country. Always under some type of problem. Always under some type of investigation. You know, mixing people in with the wrong kind of people. You know, and I say that by patients that one there there was some number of rapes there. Well, they a sexual predator got mixed in with general, you know, general people that aren't and you know, being in a certain area and. You know, I mean, just insanity, just stuff that went on in these places that it's it's hard to regulate. You know, especially these boarding schools, uh, a nail shop has more regulations on it than a boarding school. And that's a, a God-known fact. It's a fact of life. It takes yeah. more regulated than a therapeutic community or a boarding school. A, a nail shop. Now, you figure that out. <laughs> and, the, and, the, and the damage you're doing to these kids is irreversible and irrecoverable because the statutes of limitation run out from the age of 18 or 5 or 6 years I think pulsates 5 to 6 years after that well most people by the time they're 20, 25 years old if not, their head still isn't in the clouds they're not even thinking about suing anybody or taking somebody to court they don't even know it's available so by the time you do focus at about 40 years old 50 years old and what the hell actually put you through all this and why you've been the way you've been all your life it's too late to do a damn thing about it anyway, except go out like we do and try to make people aware and don't put your kids in these messes because it causes you problems throughout the years. You know, you never grow up quite white. You just don't grow up quite right. It's just there's always something wrong. It's not you. It's just nobody ever told you you're okay. Hey, hey Mark, uh, Allendale, is that, in, is that the North Chicago uh, place? That's in Lake Villa, Illinois, by Gurney, by Great America. Gotcha. Okay, so... Are you saying that this this particular treatment center is a, is like one of the good ones? 
Oh, no, no. It's poorly rated, very poorly rated. There was uh, some guy named Perry sometime back raped a student there oh, and stuff like that. Oh, okay. It's, it's quite infamous, actually. I want to look into it because obviously they're still in operation. Yeah, so, if you look at the place, you'll see that they're corporately owned. They own, they own a number of facilities in the country, and yeah, the, the staff hate the place. What I look at too is I'll look at staff reviews, forget patient reviews. You know, I look at staff reviews. I want to know how the employees talk about a place, and none of the employees seem to have a lot of nice things to say. Okay, cool. I think this is a, a great jumping-off point because this is kind of like what we wanted to get to to go from. You know, the, the notorious past of Elon, what they did, you know, and and how this model or, or things like it are kind of still in operation. So you have to have the adult survivors out there to show you what the results are, you know, how people feel, whether they're constructive in life. I mean, I'm successful in life. Todd Nelson is very successful in life. Bad Hoffman was just successful in life. And many others, uh, you know, uh, Adam Titus, you know, but we still are a, a bubble off a little bit because of the experiences of a lot in school and some of the other places we went through in life. And yeah, it, it, it does, it is long-term damage. So be careful before you hurt your kid's brain. Because this kid, once right. he gets out, it's, it's not going to get better overall. It's not. Treatment helps. It's not, treatment's not bad, but it has to be the right treatment by the right people. And yes, it could probably work, but the best treatment starts at home. We got to let that Exactly. That's so important that you said that. I mean, I want to pause for a second because we uh, we did an interview a few months ago with a, a guy named Dr. Kevin Fall, and uh-huh. he's a, he was a troubled parent with a troubled teen. And what he did is he invited his son into uh, kind of back into his life so they could kind of recover together. And then wrote a book about it, and um, it's important that parents recognize that they may they may be suffering as well, and not being you know the best of parenting. And in order to you know, in order to heal their kid, they kind of need to look at themselves first in a lot of ways. So, um, well, a lot of parents they never begins at home, absolutely. And when you when you're dealing with the younger parents these days, and I call it the years of entitlement. You know, where they were never hit, they were never really grounded, they still had their iPhones. That, you know, it's not about beating the kid, but it's about getting their attention of who's the boss. Quit being their friends. Be their parent. This isn't right. your friend that you're copying with now. This is your daughter. Or this is your son. You're not buddies. You're never, you're never gonna be buddies or you're never gonna be friends. You can get along together, you can share love together, but it's always gonna be your mother, it's always gonna be your father. And nobody, does that anymore you know there are a few you know and i'm not saying they have to be bible thumpers or any of this stuff although god is a good influence but at least get a homebody going you know sit down every night and talk so many parents were never taught how to parent because they were never you know and now they're parents they don't realize you do need this this this, this camaraderie at home some kids feel abandoned they feel they need that extra coddling and that extra love and you can't do it with a tv or a laptop because that takes some other places they probably shouldn't be. You, the love has to start at home, you know, and, and, and people just, they, they fail to get that. The problem's not just the kids, but it's also yours. There's something going on in your parenting that's not working. And it's not saying you're a bad parent, but something about the style. Maybe you were never taught. Maybe yelling and screaming is not the way. A lot of times that's not the way for the kid. 
Some people, that's all they knew growing up, they yelled and screamed at. So I guess when I got a kid, I'd yell and scream at them. No, that's not how, you know, and, and, it, and it's hard. My father beat the shit out of me when I was a kid. To this day, I never hit my daughter, never hit my grandkids. Wanted to a few times, but I know what that feels like. And I don't want right. to do that. It's not worth right. it. They'll get the message. They know that Papa doesn't joke, but I don't want them to experience that part. I would rather just not do something for them. They want something done. I ain't doing that. No, you do it on your own. You know? Sure. Because know what the physical aspect of it is. I never shut them out. You know, I, I always talk to them for how mad I get or how mad they get. I still talk to them. I don't block them out. They don't call me no more. You know, I just let them know I'm not pleased with what's going on, and you know what we need to fix this because your uncle told me ultimately going to be the one who suffers, not me. I'm always going to drive my Cadillac. I'm always going to have a good time. And you're the one that's not going to be doing things, not me. And and, yeah. and, they, and, yeah. clearly, and clearly, you didn't you didn't shift them off to some camp. You know, they obviously never in my wildest dreams. I do that to Never in my wildest dreams. I would never put them in an institution because I talk to them, I communicate with them. They know I'm not their buddy, but I am their friend. And my granddaughters come to me with anything that's on their minds, any, and I help them, and I do, I, I spoil them, I mean, they get what they want, but they also carry A averages, they're on a, they're on a roll students, my 14-year-old's got a job, I mean, they're doing what they're supposed to do, thank God, because I've, I've tried to mold them to the point that don't ever be like your grandfather was when he was a kid, but I really don't tell them about for the kid, I just tell them that life was rough, I don't want yours to be, and this, this is what the good side of life looks like. Either you like it or you don't. And they know they like it. I, I, and you have to work. You have to do this. There's responsibilities, accountability. And I work with my grandkids on a, on a constant basis. The only reason I'm still in Chicago is because they're around. But it's just, you know, parents don't do that. They don't take the time. If you're going to have kids, it's work. It never stops. Because once they grow up, they send you a fresh batch of kids again. And you start over. <laughs> it's, a, it's a never-ending cycle. The only good part about the second batch is you can return it when you get tired of it. That's why kids always love the grandparent, because they ain't around the grandparent long enough to see the real ugly side of it. About the time the grandparents go crazy, they're getting dropped back off. All they know is the love McDonald's. Well, Mark, I think we're going to wrap it up. I really want to uh, thank you for coming on. Um, that was a lot of information, and I think it was uh, really valuable. I would encourage people to to take a look at and what they're really doing as parents and have you and have you had a chance to see our documentary? So the last stop? We have, yeah, we have not. We, we have, have not because we don't have. Mark, uh, email me your email me your email email your address to me, and I'll send you a copy of it. The documentary will lay on your back. It'll lay on your back. You go, wow! And that's just a brush. That's a great thing overall. On that's Todd and us. We really didn't get deep because we did scare people out of theater, but. That's just glazing sure. over them. a lot. And yeah, you'll be horrified. We'd love, actually, we'd love to talk to, uh, to Todd as well if, if he's open to the idea. To uh, Because I know that, you know, just from the previews, we, you know, we realize what an important film this is, even even now. Uh, he did a phenomenal job. He did a phenomenal job. And Todd is a, he's, he's a professional editor in New York. That's what he does for a living. So... That's the guess what I'm saying. A lot of us turned out very successful. We have trades, we have talents, and we mix them together. Todd is an excellent producer. Let me or or excellent. I, I won't brag, but we're very good researchers and investigators. And, and, and accumulatively between us and, and Jamie Unker, who did the music, and, and, and Russ Jackson, who did the who, who did a lot of the graphics and stuff. We 
we all put our talents together and, and formed that thing. And, it, and Todd made sure it spun off excellent, just unbelievable. You know, you can't help but progress it. It's two hours long, but you never stop watching it. It was really ironic. Most films get tired, start yawning, we'll get popcorn. Not this one. No, this one. You know, Mark. Mark, on a personal note, for me, uh, uh-huh. you, you, and the work you have done allow me to understand how this all happened to me. You know, and it's so important. You know, well, I appreciate it. I appreciate that. I'm glad I've been to help. That's what we're here for, to help anybody. Young, old, don't matter. We're here to help. All right, Mark. Thank you so much for coming on, and uh, we'll be in touch. I really appreciate it. We both really appreciate it. I really appreciate your time and having me on. And like I said, email me your address. I'll send you a copy of our documentary. Thank Uh, you. All right. We'll we'll also provide a link to the the website in, uh, in the show description so people can actually go and and purchase the uh, the film. Um, I appreciate it. I, yeah, of course. Uh, yeah, the, the, last stop. the reason the reason it's called the last stop that's what that's what Joe Ritchie used to say. This is the last stop before prison. That's why the film's called the last stop. Right.